This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... We in the developing world are not asking for charity. The basic fact is rich countries build their economies on dirty energy that's creating this problem, and they are simply being asked now to pay their climate debt. That's uh, environmental activist and former Greenpeace head Kumi Naidu on a push uh, on supporting poorer countries who are suffering from pollution. Details coming up also. Counting is underway from yesterday's U.S. midterm elections. The latest on the COP27 talks. And we look into Kenya's concern about financing for a rail project. These stories and more on African News tonight. But first, our top story, U.S. voters headed to the polls yesterday to decide control of the U.S. Congress. But with vote counting still ongoing, many races are still too close to call, and it is still unclear if Democrats will retain their narrow majorities in the House and Senate or if Republicans will take control. VOA's congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson reports from Georgia. Americans voting on the direction the country will take for the next two years choosing if it is time for Republican leadership or if President Joe Biden will continue to have the support of a Democratic Congress. I definitely want to keep the House blue, um, so I made sure to vote uh, Democrat. More than a third of the U.S. Senate was up for re-election this year. Republicans needed to win just one additional seat to overcome Democrats' narrow majority. Democrats had an early loss in Florida, where Congresswoman Val Demings, Our democracy, it still matters. Failed to beat Republican Senator Marco Rubio. When you see the results across this country tonight, that's what it's all about. The people who make this country great have been forgotten. A handful of Senate races still too close to call will determine which party has the majority. In Georgia, the vote count is narrowly split between Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker and Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, who reminded supporters of the stakes of this election. Women and their right to choose is on the ballot. We got to show up tomorrow. An argument that resonated with many female and independent voters in the suburbs. Georgia voter Heather Packer. I am... Voting for things to stay Democrat, to be honest, just because of uh, all the the abortion right issues. um, That's really important to me that a woman still have the right to choose. Um, And um, so that swayed my opinion strongly in the way that I voted. Historically, the party in power loses midterm elections. For some Georgia voters, this election is an opportunity to express their dissatisfaction with Biden. Georgia voter Betsy Nenick. I don't think he's made many of his own decisions. I think he's more of a spokespiece for um, for this far left and special interests. All 435 U.S. House seats were also up for re-election, with Democrats securing some key early wins in the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. There were isolated reports of delays in casting and counting ballots, some due to machine malfunction. But overall, the voting around the country ran smoothly. 
Officials may not be able to finalize results for several more days. Katherine Gibson, VOA News, Atlanta, Georgia. For more on the U.S. midterm elections, we have on the phone Pearl Matibi, State Department and White House correspondent. Welcome to African News Tonight, Pearl. Uh, Hello. Uh, Thank you very much. What were you watching for on Election Day? Uh, That's a great question. So uh, prior to the election, I had been briefed by uh, Doug Schwartz, who is the director of the Quinnipiac University Poll, and Dr. Lisa Bryant, who is the current chair of the Department of Political Science at California State University. And so some of the things that we were looking into here... Republicans had the momentum going into Election Day on Tuesday with high hopes that they would win back the House. The Senate, on the other hand, was widely expected that it would be decided by very close races. Um, So one of the things that we were looking for, for example, in Georgia, as you just heard uh, on the show uh, a few minutes ago, we were looking at the Warnock race, we were looking at the governorship race between Stacey Abrams uh, and Brian Kemp. As you can see, the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, did win the election. Um, so these are some of the things that we had been uh, looking for. And who, in, in fact, is going to end up controlling either the House and the Senate. And also these elections, depending on who ends up having control, not only of Congress, but also of the statewide governorships, will it lean more to more uh, Democratic governors or more Republican governors. This election is a referendum on the president. It's both a referendum of President Biden and a referendum on former President Donald Trump. Pearl, uh, you toured polling stations in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us a little about what you observed in that jurisdiction? Yes. uh, So the polling station, I'll just mention one of them. That polling station would be Cleveland Park Library that is in Washington, D.C. And that that polling station had the uh, opportunity to speak to the Washington, D.C. Board of Elections spokesperson, his name is Nick Jacobs. He told us that even before polls had opened, the mail-in ballots, they had already 100,000 people in Washington had already cast their ballots prior to that. I was able to observe, um, you know, voters going in and coming out, able to talk to some of those voters, we were able to ask them about how do they supervise the elections, what do they do in terms of reaching out to voters. And then after the election uh, last night, we managed to go to the mayor's uh, election watch party. So the current mayor in Washington is Muriel Bowser. She's the, she was the incumbent. She's already uh, been serving two terms. She won a third term. But while I was at that polling site, I met members of the campaign team from her opposition, who is uh, Rodney Red Grant. Now, Rodney Red Grant was running as an independent, and his campaign team was out encouraging uh, voters. Um, and the purpose he wanted to, to run is he wanted to out uh, Muriel Bowser, of course. He was running on issues of public safety, on youth, on seniors' programs, and displaced citizens and affordable housing. But it turns out in the end that uh, Muriel Bowser ended up winning that election. I went to, uh, to, to both uh, watch parties, uh, both to Rodney Red Grant's one. He held his watch party in Washington, D.C., downtown, and Muriel Bowser was holding hers at the Hook, Hook Hall uh, in Washington. Pearl Matibi, State Department and White House correspondent, thank you for your input. Thank you very much, uh,
Members of the African diaspora were candidates in elections across the United States, from state or city offices to congressional races. Here's a quick look at some of the results. In a Texas race for U.S. House of Representatives, Texas-born Democrat Iro Imiri of Nigerian descent lost her race. Nigerian descent Democrat Carol Kazim won a seat in the Pennsylvania state legislature. In Ohio, Democratic candidate Munira Abdullahi of Somali background ran unopposed for a seat in the state assembly. In Colorado, Liberian-American Nakweta Ricks won a state legislature seat. In Georgia, Segun Adiena, a Nigerian-American, ran unopposed for a state legislature seat. Ghanaian-American Adrian Boafo and Wala Balkai of Liberian-Nigerian background both won Maryland state legislature seats. In Cairo, heads of government, world leaders and activists are debating ways to battle climate change at COP27. VOA's Heather Murdoch is following the talks and joins me online for a look at today's actions. Welcome to African News Tonight, Heather. Thank you. Let's start with a quick look at the key topics on today's agenda. Well, today at COP27, uh, it was all about money. It was dubbed Finance Day at the UN Climate Change Conference. And um, this is arguably the most important topic that is happening in these two weeks. Um, as we all know, it is much cheaper for countries or companies or people to pollute than not to pollute. So finding a way to pay for the initiatives people are talking about, finding a way to pay for reducing emissions, saving the globe from, from global warming, um, preventing helping developing countries that are already suffering from climate change-related disasters and helping those same communities, the poorest communities in the world, prepare for future disasters that we know are coming has to, all has to be paid for. So today was a long list of high-level meetings about finance, including finance ministers from all over the world and the World Trade Organization um, discussing how can we pay for this. So... It's an incredibly complicated topic, but we are hoping that today and the meetings that will come from today will uh, bring forth some clear change in how to finance climate change initiatives. And next, uh, there were announcements from China on its contributions to a fund to help poor countries pay for climate damage. Can you tell us more about this? Yes, the special envoy for climate change, Xi Jinping from China, spoke today, and he said that his country planned to help pay for poor countries to deal with climate disasters. He said that China is not obligated to do so. Um, China is listed by the World Trade Organization as a developing country itself. However, it's still incredibly significant. China is the world's biggest country by population, the world's biggest carbon emitter. Um, second by the U.S., and also the world's second biggest economy. So anything that China and a country like the U.S. also um, does to help countries around the world deal with this is incredibly significant and important, and um, hopefully other wealthy countries and large countries will follow suit. And lastly, how about the U.S.? Did it have anything to say today? Uh, yes, uh, his counterpoint, uh, counterpart, the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry, also spoke, 
and he spoke about carbon offset. And this is another scheme to help make climate change initiatives financially viable. Um, basically, it means you don't actually reduce emissions yourself or your company or your country. You pay somebody else to do so. Um, and while this is one way to actually make it cost-effective to reduce carbon emissions, it does get a lot of critique because basically there's not a lot of oversight. There's no global commission on how to make sure when you're paying someone to reduce emissions that they're actually doing so and that they're actually helping the climate. And a lot of experts agree that if we as a world can possibly reduce emissions enough to stay below the 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial levels, and that's the target that this conference and the past conferences have been trying to meet. If it's even possible for that to happen, countries and people and companies have to reduce emissions. It's not ever going to be enough to pay others to do so. VOA's Heather Murdoch, thank you for your input. Thank you. African nations are using the International Climate Change Conference happening in Egypt to push for compensation from rich countries for disasters linked to global warming. They say the more developed industrialized countries are largely responsible for emitting harmful gases they blame for causing extreme weather that's ravaging their economies and killing their people. Here's Darren Taylor. Help us so we can help the world be a safer, better place is the message from Africa to the developed world at the COP27 summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Seven years ago, at the UN Climate Change Conference in Paris, richer countries agreed to pay $100 billion a year to help developing nations become more climate resilient. It's a commitment that's been honored to a very limited degree, says environmental activist and former Greenpeace head Kumi Naidu. We in the developing world are not asking for charity. The basic fact is rich countries build their economies on dirty energy that's creating this problem, and they are simply being asked now to pay their climate debt. They need to show the same kind of political will that they're showing with regard to Ukraine right now. South Africa's Environment Minister Barbara Creasy, who's in Sharm el-Sheikh, says the world's major economies have increased harmful gas emissions in recent years. She says most of them have left Africa to fend for itself, as extreme weather sparked by higher temperatures has caused droughts and floods across the continent. The consequence of this is that developing countries that are facing the extreme effects of climate change are having to dip into scarce resources to make their countries more resilient. And of course, what it means is that it's very difficult for many of these countries to get ahead of the curve. Creasy says COP27's almost all about loss and damage. Now, loss and damage happens when you cannot make your country more climate resilient. And so, of course, we are seeing more and more extreme weather events that can wipe out whole cities in the course of one severe storm. And these are the kind of damages and loss and damage that small island states and other vulnerable countries are wanting to see developed countries make good on. Unlike Creasy, South Africa's Minister of Energy, Gwede Mantashe, is not at COP27. He wants his country to continue burning coal to generate electricity. 
Mantashe says South Africa has megatons of the fossil fuel in its mines and it should not be expected to sacrifice this. Naidu says he's frustrated by the minister's short-sightedness. His leadership has been pathetic and disappointing and would appear to be vested in supporting the fossil fuel interests rather than supporting a new, more decentralized renewable energy industry. He must seriously wake up and smell the coffee. He needs to read what the climate scientists said. So if you have a poison that's killing you, because you have a lot of the poison, do you say, I will continue using this poison even if it's going to kill me? Our people are dying right now from climate impacts. The solution, says Naidu, is for wealthy regions to pay countries like South Africa to keep the coal in the ground. Similarly with forests, we have done it with Indonesia, we're trying to do it in the Congo right now, where we're saying to rich countries, if poor countries commit to protecting their forests, then let's see proper compensation coming from rich countries. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has urged the world to accelerate action to prevent climate change, stating, let us not take the highway to hell. Naidu says powerful countries must remember who built that highway and who are the unwilling passengers on it. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. Some Kenyan lawmakers are demanding to see more documents from a $5 billion loan agreement with a Chinese bank that financed a cross-country railway. The 2011 agreement was shielded from public view until Kenya's transport secretary released selected pages on Sunday. Critics of the deal say those pages show the Kenyan government gave too much legal authority to China and lawmakers now want to know whether Kenya put up public facilities as collateral in the deal. Victoria Amunga reports from Nairobi. Opposition lawmakers have been pushing for years for the government to release full details on the 2021 contract with the Export-Import Bank of China that financed the Standard Gauge Railway. They finally got a partial answer on Sunday when Kenya's Roads Transport Secretary Kipchumba Murkomen released select documents from the agreement. One clause says any major dispute over the railway will be decided in Beijing, not Nairobi, although it's not clear whether that means Chinese officials have the final say in such disputes. The documents also show, among other things, that the Kenyan government was legally bound to keep the details of the deal secret. Kenyan political analyst Javas Bigambo says compelling the state to conceal such information from the public is unlawful. The non-disclosure agreement as provided for in that contract is in itself illegal going by the fact that the laws of procurement in Kenya advocate for transparent procurement processes. Another part of the contract mandates that Kenya is not to buy materials for the railway from any other country other than China. Some legislators believe that important details of the contract, like collateral for the loans, are still missing. John Kiare is a member of the Kenyan parliament. There are questions as to what collateral has been put up against these loans. If it is public amenities, public institutions, public investments that are being put as collateral, it is only right that Kenyans know. Because you remember there had been rumors that 
um, government institutions were being put up as infrastructure. There was always that debate as to whether we have uh, hung our ports, our airport as a uh, collateral for these loans. Critics questioned Morcomen's motive for not releasing the entire contract. Makali Mulu is a member of parliament. He thinks Morcomen disclosed only the routine parts of the deal. In every contract negotiation, the government as a lingual person who would normally look at the, all the clauses and then uh, advise the government whether it's time to sign. In every contract, there is always the, the disclosure clauses and the, the dispute resolution clauses. What Mukhamen was saying he would release, to me, I think it was just a big joke. The roughly 600-kilometer-long railway which connects the port city of Mombasa with the town of Naivasha, 75 kilometers northwest of Nairobi, opened five years ago. Critics say it's underused and has failed to generate the revenue or economic developments that the proponents of the project envisioned. China accounts for one-third of Kenya's external debt. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. Somalia's military says it has liberated more territory from Al-Shabaab, including a strategic town that has been under the group's control for 15 years. Mohamed Dassain reports from Mogadishu, Somalia. The Somali military said Wednesday that its forces have conducted a fresh offensive against Al-Shabaab fighters and recaptured the small but strategic town Wabho and key villages in the country's central province of Gilgadud. The army, backed by local clan militia, engaged in heavy fighting with the Islamist militant group beginning in the early hours of Tuesday, according to Mahas District Commissioner Momin Mohamed Halane, who spoke to VOA by phone Wednesday. Defense Minister Spokesman Abdullahi Ali Anod held a press conference Wednesday and said the latest offensive against the group has been successful. He says the forces took over Wapho, which is a big town, adding last night the forces captured the village of Warholo and yesterday El Bure and El Gorof. The spokesman said the liberated territories are well-populated area that has water wells, posture, and agricultural lands. Al-Shabaab did not comment on the arms claim, but said it had killed 15 soldiers, including officials in bomb blasts and fighting on the outskirts of the town of Mahas. The militants have increased their attacks since President Hassan Sheikh Mohammed took office in May and vowed an all-out war against al-Shabaab. Earlier this week, the Somali government said its forces killed 200 al-Shabaab militants over a four-day period. Mohamed Daisane, VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. Ethnic violence has killed at least 20 people in the Western Democratic Republic of Congo. The French news agency AFP says the violence took place in the village of Boku in Kwamouth in Mai Ndombe province, the site of fighting between the Yaka and Tiki people since June. 
A civil society representative told AFP that unidentified gunmen attacked the Tiki village early Monday. The source said the inhabitants defended themselves with machetes and there were deaths on both sides. Meanwhile, the DRC has expelled a French journalist working for Reuters. The news service says immigration police summoned Sonia Rolli yesterday, took her passport and put her on a flight to Paris with no explanation. Roli has years of experience covering the country. The UN Joint Human Rights Office says it is concerned about the conditions under which the expulsion took place, and Amnesty International says it illustrates the dangerous climate in which the media operates in the DRC. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Shogun Chang, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.